Well, good morning, dear sweet church. We're going to pick up this morning where we left off last week in 1 Peter chapter 3. It's on page 1015 in the blue Bibles in front of you. Page 1015 in the blue Bibles in front of you. And I'm going to start this morning with an illustration from last week. We have a plate, fork, and knife. The plate is China, courtesy of Ruth Distad. Thank you, sister. And the fork and knife, well, they're just metal. Now, which of these is stronger? We all, I can read your minds. You're thinking it's obvious. Yes, the knife and fork are stronger. Which one of them is delicate? Again, it's the china. It's obvious, isn't it? But now, which one is more important? And this is a trick question. Yeah, they're both. Neither one is more important. We make the distinction between one is stronger and one is weaker, but we're not saying one is more important than the other. We're just saying they're different. We're just saying they're different. None of them are more important. They're just different. They're designed differently for different ends. The distinction is not a matter of value. It's a matter of purpose. One is clearly stronger than the other. And if we're not careful, we don't use discernment. We start using knives and forks on a nice piece of china. We put the china in a dishwasher. And what happens to it? It breaks. So what do we need to do? We need to live with it in an understanding way. Not because it's less value, because it's weaker. And that's okay. This is the way the husbands are supposed to live with wives. That's what we saw in chapter 3, verse 7, last week, where it says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Hindered. This is the the end of the letter, part of the letter, where God is telling his people to be subject for the Lord's sake to human institutions like government and even slavery, and within divine institutions like marriage. For some of us, last week, that whole section may have seemed strange, for in the weeks before, we were talking about being made for glory and being set apart for glory and being built into a spiritual house. Around a, a, around a capstone. We were, we were talking about an inheritance that was in heaven, imperishable and undefiled, waiting for us. <clears throat> but if we were made for glory in heaven, then why, why so precipitously <clears throat> does the letter turn to subordinate roles? <clears throat> what is it doing here? What is God What is God doing? What on earth is God doing? Or we might say, what in heaven is God doing? Well, church, I'm so glad you're here because we're going to look at that today. We're going to look together at what God is thinking as we unpack this next portion of the letter to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, the universal church over the last millennia since since the, the letter was first written, and those who are gathered here in this time and place. The answer to the question, what is God doing in the passage last week, is that he is preparing us for glory in the same pattern whereby Jesus went before as an example from submission and humiliation to what we see in chapter 3, verse 22, 
where we read that he is the one who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. That's where we're going today, church. And with God's help, I'm going to get us there with three main points as we walk through the text together. Let's begin reading now in chapter 3, verses 8 through 17. We'll pick up with some more scripture here in a little bit, but let's just start with chapter 3, verse 8 through 17. And connect the dots from humiliation to exaltation and from death to resurrection and see how it is that God is preparing us for glory. This is what God's word says. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Well, church, this is a uh, sweet text. What's happening here? Well, Peter is connecting the dots for us between learning to submit under human authority and obeying God himself. And this is my first point for today, that God is calling us to obey him even through suffering. We see here a call to obedience. We saw the same call last week. Only last week was T-ball, and today is fastball. You see, God prepares us to submit under the authority and will of him, whom we cannot see by first teaching us to obey human authorities that we do see. Last week, we saw a call for servants to submit to masters, even those who are unjust, They can do that with God's help as they are mindful of him, as we see in verse 2, 19. But what about when it's not an unjust master who causes grief, but God himself who does it? This church is a harder thing to bear, and it requires more of us than we have in ourselves, and we need the Lord's help to lead in this new nature. See in verse 8 that it requires unity of mind. What God requires of us in suffering is a connectedness that makes us considerate of one another, recognizing the body as each member suffers, thinking beyond ourselves with a mind that considers others 
with whom we are connected and to whom we are obligated to show care. Unity here is not an aim at conformity in trials, but a common interest in perseverance through trial to a common end, heaven. You see, as each of us thinks more like Jesus, then we also supernaturally begin to think in complementary ways with one another, ways that reflect the Trinitarian nature of God and thus have unity of mind amongst ourselves. Along with unity of mind, we're called to obey God through sympathy and brotherly love towards one another because suffering is intended to prove the supernatural work of God in us, much of it which can only be known in the context of community. Remember that we're being built into a spiritual house around a cornerstone, Jesus. We are living stones, gems, sparkling in a dark world, not because of gold or jewelry or anything on the outside of us, but because of the way we live and accommodate one another from a common living hope. Now, add to these a call to a tender heart and a humble mind, which reflect the new creation we are in Christ. Tenderness and humility are soft. We may be living stones, but we don't have hearts of stone. Rather, we are called to have hearts and minds that are responsive to Him and to one another. God is calling His people to grow softer towards Him and one another in times of trial. Not harder, but more tender. Not prouder, but humble with a sense of unity. Let me give you three applications from this series of commands so far. First, we should seek to have critical minds, but not critical spirits. That means we should live with one another in an understanding way, with humility, assuming the best motives of one another. We should think critically and be tender towards one another. Second, we should seek unity, not uniformity. That means we should encourage one another to be more like Jesus than ourselves, like the scriptures and not our own philosophies. We don't all have to think the same way about everything to have unity. And we don't have to be scared if we disagree. Our unity of mind is bigger than our uniform agreement on every conviction. Church, if we can learn to disagree without being disagreeable with one another, then we'll have unity of mind that is humble and teachable and grows in faith and hope and love and ready to follow the Lord, even into suffering. Because that's where the text goes in verses 9 through 12. See here that verse 8 is the basis for any capacity to obey Verses 9 through 12. See, unity of mind and tender brotherly love expands our capacity to endure persecution and scorn and temptation and all kinds of evil because it's in the response to the love of God for us that we are willing to follow Him. First, into submitting to human authorities and then into divine suffering. It's the tender heart, sympathy, 
brotherly love of verse 8 that enables us to bless when we are reviled and not repay evil for evil in verse 9. Then, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks or remains patiently quiet in verse 10. It's from a desire to love and see good in verse 10 that enables us to trust and obey God. Even in the suffering of verse 14, it's from a desire to, to see good days, church, that we can endure bad days. And it's only after we love what is good that we can hate what is evil. And that's what we're called to do in verse 11, to hate and turn from evil so that we can seek good and pursue it, even in the means, even if that means walking in suffering. Church, last week we saw God call us to submit to human authorities, which is hard enough at times. And this week we see him call us to submit under his, his will to suffer, that we may obtain a blessing. That's in verse 9. But in all of this, I want to show you two applications from which we can draw strength in our weakness. First, see verse 12 where it says, His eyes are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. Church, he hears your prayers and he sees your sufferings. You are not alone. You're not alone, despite the devilish whisper that taunts us and says that we are. That says, give up, Laura. No one's coming for you. Or that whispers, EJ, you're not going to make it. It's too hard. It's too far. It's too long. It's too, too. Yeah, well, fooey, you foul fiend. Listen to this instead, church. This is what God says. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. So live in full view of him and do not hide. This is what scripture says. His ears are open to their prayers. So saints, saints, listen, cry out to God. And when you can't cry out, just, just cry. But go to him. Go to him. He, is, he, he hears you. It only feels like he doesn't, but he hears you. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. See verses 9 and 14? See, both of these verses remind us that we will be blessed in the end. However hopeless things may appear in the moment, believe the scriptures more than what you think you see in God's providence. And remember, that God's intention is to bless you. His intention is to bless you and not to harm you. So don't give up. He doesn't want to destroy you. Don't destroy yourselves and don't give up. And don't be controlled by fear or be troubled by those who would seek to scare and terrify us like we see in verse 14. No, remember Sarah from chapter 3, verse 6, who did not fear anything that was frightening? Why is that? Because she hoped in God, in verse 3, 5. Instead of living in fear of what men may do, live in fear of who God is and promises to do for us. And in faith, 
Speak what is good about him. Speak to yourselves. Speak to one another. Speak to those who persecute you. Speak to the open air. Just keep proclaiming what is good, even in the midst of all that is bad. For if wives were called earlier to submit to their husbands and win them over without a word, just by the gentle and quiet spirits, then how much more shall we do if we, with words and gentle and quiet spirits, transform the world around us by faith? We can proclaim the good news of Christ, even if no one's listening. Proclaim it by faith. Do it with gentleness and respect. We should live lives that proclaim the, full, the fruit of the gospel and with truthful and faithful words speak of the God who overcomes evil, who overcomes death, and overcomes the penalty of sin for his people. Then we'll experience a taste of the blessing God speaks of in verse 9 that produces a good conscience that we see in verse 16. If we can keep proclaiming the good news of what God has planned for those he loves to the uttermost, and if we can preach to one another about all that we saw in chapter 1, about heaven and glory and an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us, then we'll be able to submit under, the, under more than just human institutions and masters like we saw last week. We'll be able to submit under the suffering from the Lord. So the application here is that when you are reviled for righteousness, then be clear-minded and see it as from the Lord and humbly seek to submit under it. Like a wife to her husband or a slave to his master or a citizen to his king, submit to the Lord and don't resist him. Don't revile. Don't grumble. But draw near to the God who gives and takes away, who prunes us that we might bear fruit and whose will it is that we would learn to entrust ourselves to him even when we suffer by his hand. That's point one. That God calls us to submit to his will through suffering. But what does this look like? What does it look like to entrust ourselves to God when he leads us into suffering? We saw last week some very practical examples of what it looks like to submit under human authorities. But what about suffering under the hand of God? Well, Peter gives us an example, and he points us to Jesus. And this is the second point for today, that Jesus is our example in suffering. Let's read from 1 Peter chapter 2, 21 and following, and then from our passage today from verse 18 through 19. 221 says, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, 
you have been healed. And again, from today's passage, it says in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, I realize this can be a jarring text for us. But let's try to understand this text in the context of all we've just spent time thinking about. And see that Peter's point in these passages is to show us Jesus as an example of entrusting himself to him who judges justly, submitting even to the point of suffering. Peter is pointing us in our suffering to Jesus in his sufferings so that we may draw near to him by faith. Share in his sufferings and submit under the Father's will in our sufferings. Dear saints, Jesus' suffering far exceeds our own capacity to endure suffering. And Jesus does this under circumstances that far exceed our own suffering. So in verse 18, we see that he suffers for sins. But who sins? Not his own. Who does he suffer for? Church, those are our sins. By his wounds, we are healed. The righteous one suffers for the unrighteous, and we are the unrighteous. How much more intolerable, really, can suffering be than when one is suffering on account of another's sins? It's not fair, it's unbearable. We often grieve about the suffering of others, unjust suffering around the world. And when we perceive it happening to us, it can shake us to the core. But ultimately, church, we aren't the righteous ones suffering unjustly, not compared to Jesus. And in this part of the letter, we're supposed to compare our sufferings to Jesus so that with a humble mind, we can see our own situation rightly, learn from his example, and follow in his steps to suffer patiently and trusting ourselves the Father who judges justly. For not only do we see here that Jesus suffers better than we do, but we see him suffer far worse than we do. You see that in verse 19? It says, His spirit descended into the depths of dark places after his flesh was put to death. There, right? There, he's surrounded by demons who are so evil that they are put in prison. These are the ones in view from Genesis 6 during the days of Noah who were described as the sons of God who had intimate relationships with the daughters of men. So they're confined in a terrible place of torment. Here in the prison, with the demons tormenting him and being tormented, rushing around him, taunting him with every vile slander and slur. What does Jesus say? What does he do? Now listen, the whole point of this part of the letter is that Peter is writing to us here to show us what it looks like to suffer without repaying evil for evil and without reviling for reviling in verse 9 while keeping our tongue from evil and turning from evil and doing good in verse 11. To not fear those who persecute you in verse 14, but give a reason for the hope that, that he has in verse 15, that he may put them all to shame in verse 16 because it was better for him to suffer for doing good 
if it was the Father's will in verse 17. So the point of this part of the letter is to show us what it looks like to suffer the worst kind of suffering so that we, may take, we, that we might take courage and suffer in our own realms. If I may reverently bring to mind now some places where we've seen Jesus speak in the Scripture and consider how the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Even in this awful place here in a prison surrounded by the demonic realm where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. When tempted in the wilderness by Satan, what did he do? He replied with Scripture. In Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, he spoke to two men after he was crucified. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted the entire Scriptures and showed how they were concerning himself. When the Roman cohort came to arrest him in the garden, he caused them all to fall down, pinned backwards, just by saying his name. When he was before Pilate, he was relatively silent before him, making no defense. But here in the scripture, he is speaking. He's proclaiming. He's preaching. So what does he say? I wonder if it might have started with, I am. And when he says that, I wonder if not all the demons fall back, pinned to the ground, and there's a moment of silence, and then the Lord speaks. Maybe he said, my name is Yeshua. Yahweh saves. And at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Demons, it is finished. Tetalus die. What you have intended for evil, my Father has intended for good. And though he slay me, yet will I praise him. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. You do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and end and enter into his glory? I do the will of him who sent me, and I will finish his work. I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those the Father has given me. For the joy set before me, I have endured the cross. I have despised its shame. The gates of this place will not prevail against my church. My Father has loved them with an everlasting love, and not one of them will be snatched from my hand. By my wounds, they have been healed." I am the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. The nations are my inheritance. Where I am going, you cannot come. And you cannot have them because I am my beloved's and they are mine. I have prayed for them and now I will go to prepare a place for them. But you will perish in your sins. 
Your master has bruised my heel, but I have crushed his head. I am the resurrection and the life. I don't know what he said. But whatever he said, he did not revile in return. And he spoke what is true and good. And he would have given a defense. I think that because that's the whole point of why Peter puts this rather interesting thing in this letter. He's showing us that Jesus, surrounded by the demons, tormented by them, he stood entrusting himself to God. Saints, we should follow his example. Whatever Jesus said, this text is given for our instruction so that we may stand fast during temptation and suffering. Whatever he said in his sermon, this is for sure. All of us here are with him in, text for, in, in the text in verse 18. Verse 18, we're all with Jesus in that verse because we are the unrighteous and he is the righteous. But none of us, church, is with him in verse 19. In that place, he went alone to suffer the penalty for our sins. And if we are in Jesus, then we are safe from the penalty of sin and delivered through the judgment against our sin. Jesus is our example of how to suffer because he is the one who suffered in our place, the worst suffering of all. And this leads us to my final point, which is actually an illustration that Peter gives in our being saved from the wrath to come by pointing to the wrath that's already come in the days of Noah. The illustration is baptism. Let's finish reading in verse 20. It's another long sentence, so I'm picking up in the middle of it. Verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Here we see that Jesus is not just our example of how to suffer, but he's also our refuge in whom we have safety through the worst sufferings. And to illustrate this, Peter continues with the thread he began in verse 19 from the days of Noah. He points to God's patience in the days of Noah, whereby after years and years of watching the ark being built and prepared for the day of wrath, the multitudes would still have nothing to do with it. In Genesis 6, verse 5 and following, the scripture says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land. Then he says again in Chapter 6, verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. 
Everything that is on the earth shall die. And then finally, he says in Genesis 7, 1, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Church, why was Noah righteous? Why is he and his righteous why is he and his family righteous? Why, why are any of us righteous? It's here in the text. It's in verse 18. It's on account of Jesus' righteousness that we are made righteous and brought near to God. It wasn't Noah's, and it's not our righteousness. Yet, the Lord does call him righteous, and he does so on account of his faith. Faith that responded to God in obedience when he said, build an ark, Noah. Proclaim to this awful generation that judgment is coming. Say it in word. Say it in deed. Build an ark because I'm going to do something that you have never seen before. Noah believed God and he obeyed by faith. Now I want to connect the dots. Okay. And call you to remember what Peter was saying in chapters 2 and 3, where God is calling his elect to learn to obey, to obey with an eye towards God, being mindful of him, to submit to authorities and masters and husbands by faith so that we may not follow in the same pattern of these lawless demons in prison who in verse 20 on this text right here are characterized as those who formerly did not obey. In chapter one, verse two of this very letter, we are called to obedience in Jesus Christ for the sprinkling of his blood. If we are washed by his blood, then we are credited with Jesus' obedience on behalf, on our behalf. And we are saved on account of his faithfulness. And when we are saved by faith, then our lives are characterized by the obedience that comes from faith. As Paul says in Romans 1.5, Thus Noah obeyed God, and God called him to find refuge from the judgment inside the ark. And the ark that prefigures Jesus, in whom we are ultimately safe. Noah had never seen a flood, but he built an ark on dry ground. He could not have possibly understood all that God had in mind, but he obeyed what he did know of what God said. Church, hear this application for us here today that we should obey God in what we do know. Wherever we do understand him, we should obey and not harden our hearts or stop our ears. Don't require God to explain every little detail before you obey the detail he's made clear. Obey what we know and trust him for all that we can't understand. Well, God certainly gave Noah some understanding, lots of it. He gave him specific detailed plans of the ark's construction with many decades to prepare because God was not willing that any should perish. But he would save out of the multitudes eight souls that he loved. He waited patiently until they were safe in the ark. And then he destroyed every man, woman, and child, and everything that had breath in its lungs. Because God is holy and everything was ruined. This sounds harsh, I know, but remember who we just saw standing before the demons in prison and remember 
why he was there. It was on account of sin. Because God hates sin. And it was on account of sin that Jesus was there, though not his own. He took it as his own. He bore our penalty as his own because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. Friends, if you're here without a Savior, then that judgment is for you too. Unless you find your refuge in Jesus and until you find your way into the ark, the judgment he took for us will be yours alone to bear. But if we are in Christ, then we are not only saved from wrath, but we are saved for glory. And this peace that transcends all understanding is what Peter is calling us to in suffering. He's been calling us to obey in suffering and trusting ourselves to God who judges justly. And by faith, abide in Jesus. To get into the ark and be saved, as verse 20 says, through the water. Now, the water here pictures suffering. It pictures judgment. It pictures death. It pictures God's wrath. The ark pictures Jesus and salvation from wrath. And when the ark makes it through the waters, its deliverance pictures the resurrection from the dead. Baptism corresponds, the scripture says, to all of this. And is why in verse 21 it says, baptism now saves you. It's because he preserves us through the waters of judgment. See carefully, that is not simply the mechanical act of getting wet. It's not the thing that happens to the skin because it expressly says that baptism is the appeal of God, the appeal to God for a good conscience, being mindful, even hopeful of God's salvation through his death and burial and resurrection. Baptism is the illustration Peter gives of God's salvation through suffering, through judgment. Jesus bears the full weight of wrath. And if we are in Christ, then we are safe from it all. We have a good conscience before God in times of human suffering and ultimate judgment because our confidence is in the strength of the boat. It's in the merit of our Lord. This is why he says in verse 21 that baptism corresponds to the ark and the flood and that it saves us. I want to make this observation about baptism here that it's directly connected to an appeal to God. If there be no appeal or expression of faith, then is there anything for baptism to correspond to here? Furthermore, the appeal here is for a good conscience. It's a cry for safety and salvation. But without a recognition of sin and pending doom for sin, how can there be a cry for salvation from the penalty of sin? Baptism is here an illustration that Peter gives us of what it looks like to trust Jesus and rest in his care, his care for us in every trial. If baptism does not correspond to our hope in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, then how can it be an appeal to God for a good conscience? Church, this is why baptism happens upon salvation. It's an outward expression of an inward reality for what God has done for us in Jesus. And concerning Jesus, we finish this with verse 22. 
where we see Jesus, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. He's not under Pilate. He's not under the Jewish leaders. He's not on the cross or in the tomb. He's not in the dark, hellish places of dungeons. He's not suffering wrath, but he's in glory with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Praise God. Church, this is where Jesus goes. And if he is our pattern, this is our end as well. With God in heaven. Jesus is our pattern of death and resurrection. Jesus is our pattern in humiliation and glory. Of submitting under God's providence and entrusting himself to one who judges justly. Now, we asked the question at the very beginning of the sermon. Why, if we were made for glory, must we submit under the trials of suffering now? Well, it's in part because that's the pattern that Jesus gave us in death, burial, and resurrection. He is our pattern in life and in death. And if we die with Christ, then we will be exalted with him as well. In whatever suffering we have known and whatever is to come, God will deliver us out from it because he has already taken the worst of it. You, church, have been brought through the waters of baptism. You have been brought through it, you are being brought through it, and you will someday be brought through it fully. Because from the very beginning of this letter, we have seen God the Father and the Son and the Spirit orchestrating our salvation in past and present and future to glory. God will not lose us. No one fell out of the ark. There is more ahead in this letter regarding suffering, but I hope to encourage you, even as I ask that you encourage me, to trust that God will raise us up in due time. He knows our frame. He is tender towards us because he knows that we are weaker. And he's tender towards us. Let us persevere, dear church, for someday we will rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That's what we celebrate when we take the supper together. We celebrate his death until he comes. We are proclaiming what he has done and that he will come again in glory 